If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 24. We are to the last day of Christ's life. Everything is built up to this the passion of Christ where Christ will give his life as a ransom for many. And right after the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, we read this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greatest? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Father, I ask that we would learn from Christ's words. We can learn from Christ's example. Father, we would learn from the wretchedness of pride that we see on display with the disciples at this moment in Christ's life, the last week of his life, the last the night he's going to be betrayed, Father, that man would be arguing about who's the greatest. Father, help us become more like Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of things I've learned from John John Piper over the last 15 years. One of the things that stands out to me that the image or that he creates just uh, has always uh, helped me is this idea that heaven will be full of joy. And it'll be full of joy because there are no mirrors there. And his point is this, is when we see Christ face to face, it's at that moment where every insecurity, every looking into self to try to find value will end because our eyes will be gazing on all that is glorious. And he gave examples of why people like the Grand Canyon. 
they stand as a little tiny human being in front of such a vast canyon that God has made and they buy postcards and they buy t-shirts and they take pictures. And he says, why do they like it? Why do they like the thing that makes them feel small? And what he points to is we're made for self-forgetfulness. We're made not to find joy in looking in at ourselves and getting glory for ourselves, but we're made to be worshipers of God. We're made to worship Him. We're not made to be worshipped by others. The Apostle John sums up the world like this in 1 John 2.15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he lists three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John didn't just come up with that out of nowhere. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was leading him. But he read Genesis chapter 3. He read the fall of man. Genesis 3, 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. What is that? The lust of the flesh. I have a craving in the flesh. When Eve saw that the tree and the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the coveting heart, wanting that which you don't have, believing that if God was good, he would give you the forbidden fruit. She saw it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, which is the pride of life. Wanting to be smarter than God, wanting to have people look up to us. The pride of life, that's what is in the world. And when Eve did that, she took its fruit and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat? Now listen to the treachery. The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The chapter before this, God had told Adam, anyone who eats of that tree shall die. God gave Adam a wife in chapter 2. And Adam's heart leapt with joy. And in chapter 3, Adam is essentially saying, kill the woman. But before that treachery, he blames God. The woman whom you have given me. Gave me the fruit. And what we see is Adam become the antithesis of Christ. The opposite of Christ. The first Adam is not like the second Adam. The first Adam is selfish. Take my wife's life before you take my life. Take the bride. And selfishness became one of the main attributes of mankind as everyone was born in Adam. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. Noah, after being faithful and building the ark and exits the ark and becomes drunk and gets naked and drunkenness is the lust of the flesh that is selfish to the core. All the lust of the flesh, selfish. Our family needs our health. How do we eat? Pornography, sexual sin, lust of the flesh. Who benefits? It's all selfish. Everyone else suffers when a man is given over to the lust of the flesh. Abraham lies about Sarah to save his own skin. Jacob deceives Esau for his brother's birthright. David steals Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and has Uriah killed. And now the disciples, on the very night when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, and Christ says, I love you. This meal is a love offering I give you. It's like a ring. It's like a promise that will remind you that I gave my life for you. And I think what happened is because he said, one of you would betray me. Now I would be guessing here. You can't put the gospels together and get the exact order of how everything happened this night. We know it happened this night, but the order is different. But how in the world can they end up arguing about who's the greatest? 
Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They begin to say, is it I? They look around. Well, it couldn't be him. He's a good one. Well, he's better than him. How does this happen? How does our text come about? Look at verse 24 of Luke 22. See the ugly nature of the self-serving man. The drive of this sermon is this. Seek to be great in the kingdom of God by becoming a servant. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be the greatest. How can this happen? Who would it be? I think I'd pick Peter. Who's, who's going to be the greatest? It's for sure between Peter, James, and John, right? Wouldn't that be who's going to be the greatest? We read in Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some said John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter probably would rise to the top in my mind. If you're looking at the first one to claim that Christ, other than a demon, to claim that Jesus is the Christ, we might think Peter, the transfiguration, Luke 9.28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took up with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. But anyways, an argument arose as to who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus says in verse 25, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And what we see is the paradigm for worldly greatness, it was, it's the same today as it was then, is the one who is exercising authority over others is the greatest. In other words, the one whom is being served is the greatest. If you want to find the greatest according to worldly standards, find the one who has the most servants. Find the one with the most authority who can lord it over those who are under them. It says those in authority over them are called benefactors. Josephus said in those days, uh, benefactors uh, were those that had people that were honored to serve under them. They were honored to uh, 
put themselves under the authority of these who uh, had authority here on earth. And we must put ourselves in the context of what's about to happen. The perfect Son of God who humbled himself and took on flesh and who has never sinned and never wronged anyone is about to go to a cross and die for sinners all at the same time. The disciples arguing who's the greatest and we just see the second Adam is different than the first Adam and all of his children. It's like they're not even close. They're not even close. In the same moment, they should start to be humbled. They're arguing and wanting to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus says to them in verse 26, but not so with you. This is emphatic. With you, it ought not be. It ought to be different. You ought to be different than the Gentiles. See, they don't understand even who they are yet in Christ. They're getting a little bit of a clue that they're going to be a part of the kingdom, but they're putting earthly values to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is totally different. And so Jesus says, it must not be so with you. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader among you as one who serves. He flips the paradigm on its head. The paradigm for greatness in the kingdom of God is the one who is the lowest servant is the greatest. And who needed to serve more than anyone else but the youngest? If you want to be great, you have to become like the youngest with no rights. You're not feeling like you deserve anyone else to come and serve you, but you view yourself as a servant. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader. So there's leaders in this new kingdom. There is leaders. But they must become like the youngest. This is very important. All leadership in Christianity needs to be servant, Christ-like, leadership it's not for authority it's not for power it's not for recognition or human praise but it's to serve and so in Hebrews 13 when the writer of Hebrews says things like this Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. He has in mind servant leaders. And then 10 verses later in Hebrews 
13, 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The reason why it's so important that in the kingdom of God and in Christian leaders need to be humble servants is because God asked the flock to submit to leaders. And there is no more dangerous person than someone who has the position of authority for their own ends and and their own glory to call a flock to submit to someone who's looking out for their own good and not the good of others would be a terrible thing. And we must remember that the kingdom of God is opposite than the kingdom of the world. They're not even kind of alike. They're polar opposite. Let the leader be has one who serves. The leadership at this time in Israel was the scribes and the Pharisees. In Luke 20 and verse 45, here's how they were described. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The leadership in Israel looked just like the leadership everywhere else among the Gentiles. It was, it was exactly the same. In Matthew 23, they're described like this. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, are on Moses' seat. So do not observe whatever are, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Just the opposite of a servant, the leaders in Israel tied up heavy burdens on people's shoulders, and they were unwilling to move them with even a finger. And so Christ would be blowing the minds of the disciples when he's saying this. No one has ever heard of anything like this. The servant being the greatest. He says in verse 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's saying that's how it is, right? The greater ones get served. The lesser ones are the ones serving. But he says, but I am among you as one who serves. Now we know from John's gospel that right before this meal, what did Jesus do? He got out a towel 
and he washed all their feet, all the disciples' feet, as an example for them. He says, as I have done for you, you should do to one another. I did this as an example. And so he's blowing their minds. He's saying, who's the greatest? Isn't the one who sits at the table and reclines? Yet I'm here this evening and I'm serving you. I'm serving you this meal. And the paradigm of greatness is being flipped on its head. Back in Luke chapter 12, when he was sharing a parable about staying dressed for action for when the master returns, in verse 35, he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once. And when he comes and knocks, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And they would say, <laughs> well, the, the parable kind of made sense until the end. They're supposed to stay ready to serve the master well. The master comes, but then the master is going to become the servant. They must have thought, surely he messed up the end of the parable. Robert Stein writes, great people in this world are served by others under them, but Jesus had not come to, the, or come to be served, but to serve. He came to pour out his blood in order to establish a new covenant. Back in verse 20 of this same chapter, Thus, to be great in the kingdom means to follow Jesus and to become one who serves, to think of oneself as having the least rights and to be the youngest. So this new covenant that Christ establishes is totally different than anything the world had ever seen. Daryl Bach writes, Greatness is not defined by position or resume but by one's attitude and service. And so we see in the disciples the ugly nature of the self-serving man. And we see the beautiful nature of the selfless servant in the person of Christ. We're going to continue to see it through the rest of these two chapters but thirdly, I want you to see the dueling natures of Christians, those who are born again. Because what Jesus doesn't do here is he doesn't say, he doesn't just tear down the disciples and say, you're worthless. But rather in verse 28, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, in Matthew's gospel, in a moment, what Jesus is going to say is, just as it is written, strike 
the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus is leaning in to even the C minus grace of God in their faith. You have little faith, but they have faith. He's leaning in. He's recognizing a difference from the 11 and from Judas. The 11 stick with Christ ultimately. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink in my table in my father's kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting. He says, you actually are going to be great. But you're not going to get to greatness the way you think you're going to get to it. You're going to get to greatness by losing your life, by becoming servants, by becoming like me. In fact, if we look at next week's text, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you have known me. And so we see in this text the battle that's going on with those of us who have new life in Christ, but yet we have this remaining selfishness, this remaining confidence in our own flesh. Selfishness is inward worship. And it has enslaved mankind ever since Adam. It is true that Jesus Christ died so that you can be saved from the punishment of sin. That is true. But there's even better news than merely that. Christ has died not merely to save you from the punishment of sin, but from the slavery of sin, which makes you selfish. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.11. If the sermon was merely this, be servants. Be those who are humble servants. You might say, well, I already knew that. I didn't need to come to church to learn that. You already know that, that you're to be a selfless servant like Christ was a servant. The real question is, how? With your selfishness being so strong and rooted in the old nature that's still alive, how? I think we get a clue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, and he's speaking on behalf of the apostles, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known by God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us 
so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He says there's a distinguishing nature between us and the world. And then he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. You, you, you hear that? It's kind of a play on words. If we're out of our minds, it is for God. If we're away from ourselves, which would seem crazy to the world, it's for the glory of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And here's what he says. For the love of Christ controls us. This is how you're going to become less selfish. Become more like Christ. You've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. How's it going to happen? Paul tells us here, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Paul, how are you so selfless? How do you get beat up? How do you continue to be faithful with the gospel even though your life in this world looks like it's going down the drain? You're ending up in prison over and over again. How do you do it? Where does it come from? And he says, love outside of myself. That a fountainhead of love that doesn't start with him but started somewhere else has come into my heart. It's a foreign love. It's not an Apostle Paul love. It's a Jesus Christ love. And he says it overtook my life when I concluded this, meaning it became powerful when I believed this love, when I looked at the gospel and I thought about it and I believed it. That's what he's saying here. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That's his statement of because I had faith in this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, not only that your sins would be paid for, but what does he say here? That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the best news in the world. There's been so many times in my life I've looked at true servant-hearted people that are so selfless, and I think in my mind, that, that seems impossible. That seems impossible. How can they just look past their own good for the good of others well it's supernatural love that takes over the heart when a person believes it and then when a person believes it you start to become a new creation which is what he says here he says no longer view us as in the flesh we're new creatures in christ He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So a couple, a married couple that has been married for years and years and years, 
And it's just like living with a stranger in your own home. And you just say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to stay married to the end because divorce is bad. I want to tell that couple, look at the cross. Do you not have the love that Christ gave you? Is that not well up in your heart that you're not able to give that to your spouse so that two selfish people can change after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? I don't listen to any argument that says it's been too long. It's over. No, it's not over. If Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave and were promised one day to be exactly like Him in the kingdom of heaven with no sin, then of course there's hope. But the hope doesn't come with intellectual knowledge of what Christ did for you. It comes from a heart that concludes by faith. When I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Therefore, I can make progress against selfishness in my own soul. An eternal well of love must fill up your heart so much that you can't hold it in anymore. It overflows. You can't help it. You have to give it away. That's why Christianity cannot be lived by mere moral rules. Oh, be a servant. Well, you won't be. It's lived by a heart that loves Christ and looks at the gospel. There's not people that are just born servants and others that are just selfish. They're all selfish. Some people are supernaturally changed by Christ and they make progress and strides. Listen how Paul says this in Romans 5, beginning to verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Rejoice in your sufferings. How can, how can I do that? Well, because Christ's love was poured into your hearts. At the right time, when you weren't good enough, Christ died for you. Here's how it works. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him. See, when you trust in Christ, all your identity is given to you. The fullness of God is in Christ. You trust in Christ. He says who you are. For the first time in your whole life, it doesn't matter how people respond to you. It ought not matter how people respond to you. Jesus tells Christians to love their enemies because they can actually love their enemies because they don't need people to respond nicely to them anymore because the fullness of Christ has filled them up. 
They're overflowing with love. They're able to give those who are the hardest to love. You see that? You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just say, I'm going to become selfless. You have to see what Christ has done for you. You have to have his love poured into your heart. You've heard me say this a million times. Galatians 2.20. What did Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then that life I now live in the flesh, which was the really selfless, loving life, right? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says that's the gasoline that drives the engine in this world. So now let me make it practical. And you got to know I'm making it practical to myself. My wife and my children are sitting here. I would either be a liar or they would know that their own dad needs to struggle with this. Husbands who have been given authority by God to lead. Do you use that leadership to selflessly serve your wife? To love her as Christ loved the church. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands live with wives in an understanding way. And what he means there is know your wife. Live with your wife in a way that you actually know her. And husbands, you know what it's like. We can live like we don't even know them. We don't know what they're thinking. We're too selfish. We're thinking about ourselves. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what our wife loves. We don't know how to encourage them. We don't know how they struggle. And it's selfishness that drives that. We use the leadership God gave us rather than to serve and live with our wives, knowing them, treating them as a fragile vessel like fine china. That's what he says in 1 Peter 3, 7. And it comes with a warning. God says your prayers will be hindered if you neglect this. But it takes selflessness to love your wives like that. Fathers, do you see your children? You may be home, but do you see them? How often I can be sitting there on my phone in the chair, and my girls have asked me the same question five times in a row, and I'm not seeing them. Why? Because I'm selfish. Daddy, let's play a game. Let's do this. Fathers, how much time do we have? Let's show them what their father is like. Let's see them. You can't do it in your own strength. You might say, I'm just not that person. Yeah, but it's the love of Christ poured into you in the Holy Spirit that can bring that about. Wives, do you see your husband that God has called you to help? He has called you to help him lead. Do you see them or has anger and bitterness blinded you 
so that it seems impossible to be able to do it. How are you going to get through that bitterness? How are you going to get through the anger? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That same love that Christ had, the fountainhead of that love can flow into your life through the Holy Spirit and you can change. You can be conformed into the image of Christ. Children, children, listen to me. So I got all the children's attention. Children, the pastor's talking to you now. Children, do your brothers and sisters, do you see your brothers and sisters are given to you so that you may love them and serve them and consider them more worthy than yourself? God has made you not to get what you want from your brothers and sisters, but to love them and serve them. Laura will keep a log of funny sayings that the girls say throughout the years, and every now and then she'll get it out and we'll read them and laugh. And I hope this is okay, Ella, sharing this. <laughs> she knows what I'm going to say. There was one time where Ella got really mad and she said, Mom! Hope is not treating me. Or how did she say it? Hope is not treating me uh, better than... How, do, how does that saying go? Philippians. Yeah. Hope is not counting me more important than herself. <laughs> you need to talk to her. <laughs> it's practical for all of us. But isn't it good news? Isn't it good news that there's hope even in the flesh to change? And here's the best news. Serving always means dying in some sense. Dying to yourself. But that's where joy is. In Acts 20, Paul says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul said, I, I worked for my own food and for the food of those with me. In all things I've shown to you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Selfishness has never given you joy. It just brings guilt. And Jesus said, if you want to find life, you need to lose it. It's more blessed to give than receive. And I want to leave you with Christ as the example in Philippians 2. Listen to these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, or only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's the greatest one right there. He has all the joys of heaven and all the glory of heaven. And he lets go of those humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, and he dies for sinners. Any sinner can be saved in Christ. If you realize that that's your only hope, Jesus Christ came to bear your sin, to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He paid the debt for any sinner that would cling to him, and say, my only hope is in pure grace that comes from his death on my behalf for my sins. But he also came to save us from ourselves and from our own selfishness and begin to change us here on this earth. Father, I pray that all of us would see the beauty of Christ. Father, that you would make us servants that our lives would reflect the love of Christ. Father, we pray that his love would flow into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and that the change in our life could not be described by anything other than the work of God. This is what we long for, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.